my guest has been on Chatter That Matters twice before. Her name is Dina Patel. She works at RBC. And I often call upon RBC people to give context to other people's journeys. In her case, her expertise in helping small business owners get to where they need, want, and deserve to go. But off camera, we were talking about Chatter That Matters and some of the stories that I've shared of people overcoming circumstances. And as we talked, Dina opened up about her journey. And I asked her, would you share it on my podcast? And Dina agreed. I look at my own resume and think, wow, if you didn't think it through, you think, what is all this? (laughs) Right? And what does it culminate to? Coin your story, depending on what role you want, you coin your story to help explain the why you. The best person to help someone understand the why you, by the way, is you. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Dina Patel, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. You know, where you are today in your life and career is something you must be very proud of. You're accomplished. You're highly respected within RBC. They're the ones that encouraged me to reach out to you to get your comments about small business. But what I think is, I don't know if the word is impressive, but what I think is so special is the journey you took to get here. It was a journey where you had to overcome some trauma. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we even get to that part of your life, lots of movement, even as a baby. You were born in England when your mother was visiting your parents. And I guess, first of all, just give me a sense of who your parents were. Was your mom English, your dad? I mean, brought you to England or what brought them to England to give birth to you? Uh, My mom actually was born in India. And as a young child, she and her family moved to London, England and spent the rest of their life there. And my dad, he was actually second generation Kenyan. So my great grandfather was from India and they, it's the classic immigrant story of three boats went and, you know, just one of them made it. And it was my great grandfather who ended up in Kenya. And you spent some time in your early life in Kenya. Yes, absolutely. I was born in London uh, and over a couple of months, we moved back to our home in Kenya at the time in Nairobi and uh, and got to start my, my childhood there. I traveled right across Kenya with my two daughters. We went on a variety of different safaris and ended up in Nairobi and, and it's just an absolutely beautiful country. I read one time that when you leave Africa, you always leave your heart there because we all came from Africa. And I feel that way about your country and I feel that way about South Africa, that it's just a very special part of the world and sadly one that's often been coveted by foreign powers. But it's just wonderful that you had that context growing up. My parents, when they left, we moved to Oakville, Ontario, and what a massive change that must have been for them. But they brought some of that, actually much of that um, Kenyan uh, background with them. Our house was filled with baskets and <laughs> spears and all kinds of memorabilia that, that um, you know, brought them closer to their, I guess, their background and, and culture before arriving in Canada. You know, you arrive at age four to Oakville. It was a cultural shock for your parents, but for you, something worse. And that's when you started to be sexually abused as a young child. And I tried to put myself in the shoes of anyone that I interview. Well, when it comes to someone who abuses a child, 
I don't want to be in their shoes. I, I have to be honest. I want to take the laces off those shoes and, and strangle them because to me, there's no worse crime than interrupting and the horrific damage it does to, to the innocence of you. So feel comfortable wherever you want to share, but just what happened and maybe the lessons for all of us is how could something like that be ignored or go unnoticed? Yeah. Um, you know, every person's journey is different, Tony. I truly suppressed all of this for many years. I buried it deep and never brought it up as a child, not well into my, you know, past marriage and all. Did I really realize this was something that I was holding on to? And frankly, it was making me sick and, you know, unwell, physically unwell. It did go unnoticed. I don't believe in my circumstance, you know, my belief system that it was something that was ever, you know, hidden or not addressed. I, I feel it came as just as much of a surprise to my family when I finally revealed it to them um, very well into, you know, into my life. Do they believe you immediately? Because often I've read that people believe you manifest these circumstances because you haven't mentioned it for so long. So how could this suddenly be an issue now or were they immediately empathetic? You know, um, you suppress these things and they go deep. Uh, I had memory loss. I had all kinds of things that, um, you know, that made me even as an individual truly question my belief system. But I did get care and that really helped me open up learn more about myself, learn more about what I was going through. And often when you do that, it unravels so much of your experiences. Um, it's like putting the dots together. It's like it's like a, a dot to dot where in the beginning it's sparse, but then you really realize, oh my goodness, this is what's happened. And caregivers, you know, professional caregivers especially can help you guide you through that as does your loved ones when you share information with them and they very quickly help you understand circumstances. Um, I feel very blessed when I decided to share my situation. I shared it first with my husband, uh, you know, who had no idea. And of course, he was just up in arms, ready to support me in any way that he could. As my siblings, my siblings were next and I, I went to my sister. Um, I have an older sister who is just like this warrior support system for me that is just unbound love. And she was right there beside me. And with her strength, I was like, wow, okay, I got this. I can, I can manage it. When I finally took the courage to tell my parents, they were absolutely supportive, which I can only imagine because many people, and I have spoken to other people that have gone through abuse and the need to have a sense that someone believes you is unbelievably important at least acknowledge, at least be aware. And uh, my family, God bless them, absolutely was right there beside me. Uh, my stepmother, um, you know, was fierce and ready to protect. And uh, it gave me a huge sense of courage to realize that I'm not alone. One of the things I want to talk a little bit about is before you actually decided to come out and talk to your your husband. I mean, there's a lot of years that you compartmentalize this and you buried this. And what I was interested in as you as a child, after the age of four, when this abuse began, there was part of you that seemed like you're always trying to find something. You called it, I think in one of our chats, entrepreneurial as a means of escape. When you're a child and you're going through something like this, 
you don't really know what you're going through. It's, it's shaking. You don't know right from wrong necessarily because you're so little. You are, you know, lured into trust and you have a belief system that, oh, this must be normal or, oh, I guess this is how it goes. You do find ways to try to prove yourself or show your worth uh, and make you feel like, hey, I'm present. I'm here. I count. Um, and so you had the, the comment about being uh, entrepreneurial. Yes. Uh, you know, it's from a very young age. I have always been, I guess you kids could say business minded. I think it's my dad that rubbed off on me in a, in a really um, healthy way. When you think about kinds of ventures, like when, if it, if it was a sunny day and everyone was out on their bikes playing, I would be like thinking, oh, okay, I can make a lemonade stand and definitely sell lemonade to my neighbors and the, and the kids on the block. So very, um, very thoughtful about how, how could I, what else could I do? And I even used to take my pocket money, save it up and save it up and save it up and buy, I don't know, this is probably aging me, but I used to buy Nelson slow pokes. I don't know if anyone remember those. There were these bo- small boxes of chocolates. I'd save up, I'd buy them, and then I would try to sell them by the piece <laughs> to my family, to my neighbors, to anybody that came to the house uh, to sort of be like, hey, want a chocolate? It'll cost you. And the funny thing about it is, of course, I would be <laughs> regularly disappointed because people would eat the chocolate but not pay. And uh, of course, my father always stepped in and paid for everybody who ate the chocolate. But uh, it's a way of just trying to be a part, you know, be a part of, I guess, the system. And I uh, certainly haven't probably changed. I'm quite entrepreneurial in spirit as I uh, as I continue my life journey. As a maybe a lesson to parents, was there two Dinas at the time? There was a Dina that was sort of dealing with, is this right or wrong? Is this the way things should be? And the data that just said, I'm happy, I'm opportunistic, I'm entrepreneurial, because to me, they seem very mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're at odds. They are at odds. And is that a a sign for parents to say, just because things might seem right, that doesn't necessarily give you permission to say they're right? You are right. They're absolutely at odds. And every person that goes through abuse manages their circumstances differently. There's all kinds of research that shows the impact uh, later on in life when you go through something at such a a young age. I think I'm, you know, if I have to self-assess, I was masking myself. I was stepping out of that circumstance and recreating or creating net new what I wanted to be, how I wanted to be. I have for my whole life that I remember been an exceptionally positive individual, like a three quarter full, almost to the, you know, to the point where it's like, is that for real? But it really is for real. It's who I am. It's how I think. And I won't let that go. I think it's my, it might even be my crutch to allow myself to overcome, you know, the circumstances that really could and have in my past deeply brought me down. It's not just your positivity that I admire. It's a sense of pursuit. You know, instead of a kid that just loved to put on a tutu and dance at one recital, you wanted to be a ballerina. Uh, you did track and field. You rode in uh, university. There's a lot to you that, to me, just said you had unbridled energy to go after things. And I think that's another interesting lesson for us because 
those are the, the you know, the children as a parent says, boy, we, we've done a great job or were we ever lucky because you, this person can do no wrong. They just love to go after life versus watch life pass them by. So I, th- I thought that was a really, it's a fascinating insight for the listeners because you can't judge a book by the cover. We just don't know what's happening inside. And the other thing, I, just why I'm on it, because I love the conversations we had prior to this, you didn't quite trust your instincts. You more often than not relied on others, often your daddy, you talked about how much you admired him. Why was that, do you think, that, you know, for someone that had such passion and pursuit and positivity, at the same time, trusting your gut and your intuition wasn't something that came easily to you back then? Yeah. I mean, not even back then, quite, quite a ways through my life. I have relied on advice and guidance, especially from my dad to navigate. And frankly, he's been so blessed. He steered me, you know, steered me solid. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with your self-belief. You've gone through something, you're shaken by it. You don't know anymore. You don't know what to trust. You're sort of lost. I'll add on to that my my perception, you know, being South Asian, there are cultural nuances. There are things that you are taught at a young age of how to behave, who to be. Um, I'm probably nothing close to the pure, typical uh, South Asian child. And my father certainly brought me up in, in a large way um, because my mother had passed when I was was younger. And so, you know, much of my belief system and self-reliance came to be on partnership with my dad. And I just took the advice. The bad part about that, I think, is that you don't think for yourself and you don't question what do you really need? What is really on your mind? You just sort of like, give me the advice and then off I go. And the advice would be given and I would take it and I'd run hard at it. And frankly, I enjoyed the pursuit. I I went after it. And I also think, again, that was another way of masking. Um, You're right to say you never know who's going through something. I truly believe fundamentally everyone is going through something at some time. It may not be as challenged as abuse. You know, abuse is prevalent everywhere, Tony, in so many different ways. Childhood abuse in particular so, you know, you don't know by the wrapping of an individual um, what they may be managing in their day to day or personally inside of them. You know, as we talk and as people listen to your voice and you've got such energy and conviction, but I, I, there's two things that you mentioned that I, I don't want to skip over. One, I think you were 13 when you lost your mom, not only a young age, but that's also an age when a, a woman's, you know, you're going through puberty, your life's changing having a strong woman role model is important. How did you navigate the horror of losing your mom? And the reality of it is that you had to find others to help you on that path. Yeah. Losing a parent, no matter what age you are, affects you deeply and profoundly, uh, even depend, no matter even of the relationship that you have with them. Uh, my mother was a pillar. She taught me, you know, I was so proud of what she taught me and, and what I could do at the age of 13. Um, she definitely taught me independence and um, self-reliance. And those are things that I grabbed onto and just held onto tight. Anytime, anytime you lose a parent, it's, it's tough. Um, and yeah, I just leaned even further, probably um, without question into my dad as the two of us connecting together, my sibling, my sister at the time, who was recently off, you know, heading a few, a few years later off to university and doing the best that we could. And the other thing you talked about is being South Asian. Canada likes to pride itself for its tolerance and its diversity. But did you ever 
find that you were an outcast or or experience that, you know, as you tried to fit in and find your place in society, at other times people were trying to push against you because you just didn't look like me. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, back back when we came, I can't even imagine because I, I was too young when we first arrived in Ontario, too young to really realize what was going on. Uh, but as I age, you know, into my early teens, teens, and then beyond, you really do realize that people do treat you differently. I remember back in the beginning, very beginning when we moved, you know, not being served at restaurants or going into a shop with my mom and the shopkeeper kind of not serving us or taking their very sweet time in an insulting way. Uh, and, and I never, ever have a single recollection of my family behaving anything but um, with dignity and you know, very calmly and very, okay, well, I guess we're not eating here. But as a child, it was sort of like, okay, oh, well, you know, okay, let's, what's next. And maybe they didn't feel it. Maybe they just, maybe they were that kind of, they had that kind of strength. I don't know. I certainly don't recall as a child going through it. I will tell you that no matter how many years later, still in Ontario, there is still quite a fierce amount of challenge, discrimination, um, feeling different, even where I live now, you know, because now I've, I moved to a small town. There's always that you are different and you feel different. And um, we have a long ways to go. I think, you know, if you're in the nestled in Toronto or some of the core city areas that genuinely have a vast expansion of diversity, it is home sweet home. Like I live, we lived in Toronto for many years and it, that was our, you know, that was our stomping ground. When you leave that, you do realize you don't need to go very far to still feel sometimes that edge of discrimination or challenge or even micro inequity. So, Dan, at age 19, you know, you're keeping this quiet, but your body, your mind doesn't want to keep it quiet and starts presenting this abuse in a number of different ways. If you could just share what you were going through physically and then what you did about it. You know, when I when I finally started, I went off to university and I was living on my own, um, you know, in, in a student life, having the time of my life, by the way. And I started relationships and realized that I was completely shut down guarded and would freeze actually in any kind, like frozen means like, like deer in headlights freeze when it came to any kind of intimacy. And I had ongoing health issues, um, where I was frozen, where I had stomach issues, I had digestion issues. We never really figured out. It just becomes this, oh, we can't medically solve for this. Therefore, you know, it could be something digestive or something else. Um, but it was, in my opinion, my guilt, shame, holding of pain that was impacting my body and my overall health. So much so that at one time I was bedridden for two weeks and uh, I had massive migraines, like couldn't move, didn't eat, you know, was ready to be, you know, go to the hospital for IV type stuff. And it never came out, nor did I let it come out that that's why I was hiding. I was, I was unwell. I was hiding that. And it, it came up and down in my life many times for health issues and sickness. How hard was it even to kiss a boy? <laughs> oh, my dad will love this because I'm sure he would never want to hear his little girl kissing anybody, but absolutely frozen still. There's no question that intimacy and relationship issues 
are a part of that. Um, I did get care well. And, you know, when I was, when I was getting care through psychotherapy, I'd also gone to a shamanic healer, which was life-changing for me. And I did regression therapy. You know, they brought me back to myself as a little child. And it's just, you're so confused. You don't know what's going on. And then later in life, you get put into that situation again. And frankly, it's like a trigger and it hits you up again and you you freeze. And it's like, wait a minute, what? No, this is not fun. This is not right. This is not good. And so you do not have that pleasure that would be very natural and normal if you hadn't gone through abuse as a child. You know, it's, this is an incredible lesson in life, Dina, because you might be in love with somebody and you know they're in love with you, but you try to show some element of physicality and they break away. And it's important for both parties to realize that it's not just a kiss between two people, that behind those lips might be something that happened long ago that's preventing it. So how did you overcome that? Or have you ever overcome that where you can trust another human in a way that you need to trust to be physically connected? Fortunately, I have been able to get over what was many years of my youth in being frozen um, when it comes to that kind of thing. And it's, of course, when I met my husband, uh, it took a lot of trust, understanding, and deep sense of safety uh, with him that allowed me to completely connect with him in a very um, deep way. And, you know, if actually people who know us know that we're quite, people always uh, say like, oh, the lovebirds are, oh, you know, we're quite connected physically that way um, in, in being best friends and holding hands and everything else along with it. And it's thanks to him that I was able to overcome. Your doctor, they can't find anything wrong with you. You decide you need to talk to somebody. Share with us what happens when you, you know, whether it was, I guess it was a psychologist that you get on the phone in terms of you're looking for help and what did you get back in return? One of the big times in my life, I was still, I was just coming back from university. I think it was like first year and I knew something was off in me. And I was teary and I went to my MD and she, you know, we, we kind of decoded very briefly. Okay. Do you want to go talk to someone? I've got someone that will call you. And I took the call. It was a very brief phone call, maybe five minutes of an assessment. And the way that I remember it, right? So you are what you believe your memories are. My memory of this was very short, very, oh, you go to university. Let me guess. You're an A student. Let me guess. You did this, that, and the other. And my answer was yes, 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 I am actually. And we never got to what's your issue or why do you even want to talk? I got a very quick response back, which is I help people that have real problems. And he, probably he did. Like there are, you know, what there are people that are ready to commit suicide. There are youth that are deeply disenfranchised and are displaying grave needs for help. And I get it. They, they do need help. But there may be people that don't show it, that may be masked of it, and that are going through something so deep and traumatic that they themselves may not be able to handle it themselves. Thanks for listening to Chatter That Matters. We come back, Dina talks candidly about how the memories, the shame, the feelings of her child abuse came back later in life and what she had to do to once again overcome. And then Amy Deacon, the founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling, joins the show. Amy never disappoints, and she talks about trauma 
and what she has to say is content that truly matters. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I ask Canadians about their money matters. We talk debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. Don't judge yourself. I don't have it all figured out. If you ask me what's my next move, I would say I'm deeply confused (laughs) and I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure out my own next career path. We all are on a journey together and you're always trying to figure out and redefine yourself and find your happiness. That's that's what I would wish for every single one of us. Right. That's why, you know, I want to work and be in love with what I do. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. Welcome back. Today, I'm speaking to Dina Patel, the Senior Director of Merchant Experience and Loyalty at RBC, who is sharing her personal story in the hope that we take the abuse of children personally. What you did next is something I really embrace. I mean, you, you love baking. You went to study bakery arts at George Brown. You, you wanted to go to Canyon and sell jewelry. You're looking for all sorts of different things to find and pursue this passion in life. And clearly, you found it because you are someone that offers and brings so much to small business owners and, and clients of RBC in terms of your gift of empathy. And not only empathy, but backed with knowledge. But where I want to take it is we move into 2019, you're married, you have this beautiful daughter, and then you suffer PTSD due to an adult onset of your childhood sexual abuse. And you describe that as a mental illness. So take us to that point so that people are aware that just because you look like you've you've locked this away, padlocked it away, there's times when these things can open up inside you and share how that happened and what it felt like. You know, I couldn't wish it upon anybody. I didn't want it for me. And it just happened. I think it was my body, my mind telling me, that's it, lady. We're going to figure this out. Something's, something's got to go down because you're not, you're not surviving the way you are now. Um, I'd always known for many years something was off, a sadness, a challenge. And I tucked it away. I kept tucking it away. I kept disregarding it. And in 2019, like it or not, I just, I just fell into a situation where every night I was dreaming of abuse. Oh, it was, it was horrible. At first I didn't say anything. And then I divulged to my husband, obviously, because it was literally like I was, it was night, they're night terrors, really. You know, lack of sleep, the alone can really mess with you. You know, the need for sleep is critical. Um, I, started losing. I had memory loss. I had inability to function properly. Um, you know, you, as an outsider, you'd see it and you say, be in the moment. Like, why can't you pay more attention to what you're doing now so that you don't, you know, put your keys in the garbage can or in the fridge type thing. And I didn't say it. Like I kept it locked away still. Actually, I, I don't think many people know really that I went through PTSD in 2019. Um, and I realized my goodness, I need to get professional help. 
And, you know, as you're talking about, you know, this lack of sleep and these night terrors, how is it affecting you at work? How is it affecting it with your relationship with your husband, your daughter, the sense of, oh, I only know you as this positive person with the glass three quarters full. How are you dealing with the fact that the persona that you've projected for years is crumbling inside you? Hey, I think it was probably crumbling all around me. Um, although I like, I'd like to pretend and believe it wasn't at that time. My husband is my best friend. I'm really blessed. I found a partner in life that has gone through this journey with me, supporting me 100%. Because believe me, when we first got together, I, I was so independent and so afraid of sharing anything. I pushed everybody away. I think it just got so bad that it became obvious. Um, and by the way, I, at the time at work, I would have rather like died than had it come out that I was going through something. I put on possibly even more of a front, probably even more obviously different if possible, if that's even a thing. I was still pursuing growth at work rapidly. Uh, I was taking on more. I was, you know, looking at different opportunities and the real breakdown, you know, lack of sleep, lack of memory, lack of ability to focus really affected my work. Of course it did. It must have. It had to have. And my my people that reported to me, God bless them. <laughs> they went through this journey with me, but they had no idea what the heck was going on. And they did. They they called me to the mat and, you know, we dealt with it. And I was as humble, I believe, as, as Pied owned my inability. I was ready to just you know, at that point, you're like, oh, I, I suck. I might as well just quit. But I didn't. Thank goodness. And I also work for a company. So I did not reveal at work at all. But I did share it with my boss. And I had to. First of all, the woman's phenomenal. And I knew I, tr- I had deep trust with her. But if I hadn't, I don't <laughs> I don't. There is no, you know, no way they could have kept me um, successful and moving forward and doing things had they not known what was actually going on inside of me. And she became a confidant, like a, a person that I talked to daily, if not weekly about what was going on and the, and the steps I was taking professionally and also as a family to heal. I'm blessed because RBC has phenomenal mental health care capabilities uh, and services and I jumped on them. I completely learned about what was available to me. I quietly went after it. Take us through that trying to get mentally well, because it's a difficult path to navigate. When I break my arm, I know I need an x-ray and I need a cast. But when you're talking about mental health, it is a very different journey. What was your journey like and what advice can you give to others who are whether it's a sudden onslaught like yours was, or for years have been, these toxins have been feeling like wet cement pouring onto your your feet, if not your legs. Yeah, um, you're right about the challenge that it can be to find the right care. There is a lot of information, care, practitioners, services, community-related support that one can get. And it's interesting, once you find the courage, and that's what I would would beg of anyone that is listening to this and can understand and maybe empathize with what they may have gone through. Taking the courage to find care is the first step. Then comes the mountain of, oh my gosh, how do I do that for me? 
how do I find the right services for me? I'm different. I need ABC. Someone else may need EFG. I jumped into looking on the net and started learning, reading, understanding. I specifically sought aftercare uh, for professionals that fully understood childhood abuse. And then the, uh, the adult onset part. There are great services for children uh, that are readily available. And you know what? Even Ontario 211, for example, um, there's littlewarriors.ca that you can go to and learn more about child care. You can just search what to do if you suspect and things will come up. It's, you know, there really are resources available. And if you're looking for health care, try to understand what kind of care you need and then go after and find a practitioner that can do that for you and give that care to you. I really don't believe I would have become well in the speed that I did and also to be able to get the tools and, and resources I needed if I hadn't sought help. And so many people, Tony, don't ask for help. They bury it. They bury it deep. And they, in my words, pretend it didn't happen or try to get over it by themselves. And the challenge with that is sometimes we just don't have the tools ourselves to heal ourselves. One of the parts of your healing journey has been to share your story. I mean, originally it was just with your boss, but from what I understand, you let many people know that the, about your journey. Was that therapy for you? Was that maybe a sense that this is a calling because this happened to you? You're trying to help others? I mean, what inspired you to, for somebody who kept everything so private for so many years to go public? You know, you're right. I did share it actually during covid I had the honor of partnering at the time I was in the HR function and I had the honor of working on our enterprise mental health initiative. Part of that was having real people tell their story about their own journey to really realize that when you look left and you look right, there are people all around you that are or have gone through some kind of abuse, you know, whether that's sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. And really, when you think about it, it touches many of us, if not all of us, in some shape or form or 60 degrees of separation. And so at RBC, I actually did a video um, revealing my situation because I truly believe we as a society do not talk about abuse. We do not talk about childhood abuse. And worse, many, you know, one in three, they, you know, if you look at the research go of children between the ages of five and 18, go through some kind of abuse. Those are the kids that are actually talking about it. Then you have adult onset and this, this, this notion of like, oh, it's too late. It happened so far ago. Let it go. You know, can't we just let that be? And guess what? You can't because it's inside of you and you're dealing with it every day. It affects your relationships, your mindset, your mental wellness, who you are. You may not even realize how much it's affecting you. So that's why I absolutely feel responsible to say, look, uh, you can go somewhere dark. You can be somewhere dark. Someone said to me once, it's okay to sit in your sadness. You don't have to guard all the time, but you also are worth finding a way to be better. Mental health matters. Your mental health matters. And lifting yourself up and realizing how it could be affecting you is life-changing to the benefit of you living your optimal life, being the healthiest you can be, and realizing that that may be something that is truly worth you getting help 
four. And if I can inspire one person to one, realize, wow, yes, this did happen to me. And guess what? I'm not okay about it. And actually take care for themselves in any shape or form for me is a wonderful win. Are you ever concerned that one night you'll go back to sleep and these night terrors will come back? Or do you feel now because you've been through this therapy, that you've shared it, that you're talking about it, you've allowed that abuse and the toxins to escape your body, or at least you're now with the capability of wrapping your arms around it and and finding a way to deal with it? Well, I'm definitely wrapping my arms around it. And thanks to the support I've gotten, I've got tools and resources and ways, you know, personal mental mantras and things that I say and do to help me through it. Uh, I absolutely do fear at any time. Uh oh, what if? Uh, especially if I come, you know, come in contact with the individual again. That I'm, that I'm like, oh no, is this going to be regression? Oh no, do I have to deal with this? And I think that's just part of the journey of healing. But I'm in a very, very different place than I was even three years ago. You know, five years ago, definitely ten years ago. And that strength that you build in yourself and you, you know, normalizing the fact that you were a victim or that you've gone through something and even speaking about it is absolutely therapeutic, whether that's to a trusted friend, you know, a sibling, a loved one or a, or a support group of complete strangers. That's, you know, find what might help you, but actually verbalizing it. I can't even express the amount of weight off of an, a shoulder of saying, hey, yes, this did t- happen to me. No, it wasn't okay. Yes, it was tough as nuts to get through, or I'm still going through it and nobody can see it. And I'm I'm done with just pretending it's not happening. Is your abuser still alive? Have you, yes. have, have you ever reached out? Yeah, yeah. Um, for many years, I just pretended I, you know, I could, I could deal with it. And then something pretty amazing happened. I realized that I'm actually in control. <laughs> it sounds very simple, but I actually started deselecting going to events and doing certain things in my life because I didn't want to be around it. And I did confront um, through therapy. Actually, my psychotherapist had recommended trying to get closure by writing a letter. So I did letter therapy and I sent that. I wrote that letter. Um, in my opinion, I was common as gracious as I could be to say, Hey, I know this happened. I'm not okay with it. I need you to stay away from me. And I wish you healing and recovery from whatever you're going through, but please come nowhere near me. And, um, you know, one thing you learn when you go through this, and this is another hopeful piece of advice for anybody that may connect with this, you are in control of how you handle your circumstances, your past is your past. Every single day is an opportunity to be different, to improve the way you live your life and care for yourself. You know, we study Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and some of the other predators that have been out there. There has been some people that say, why didn't you say something sooner or make it public so that person couldn't commit a similar crime? It depends, I think, on the circumstance, Tony. As if it's a child going through something and an adult is observing and, and stopping and changing, which is our best case scenario, then there is adult interaction that can immediately transform and impact and, and basically report and address anything so it doesn't happen again. 
when it becomes adult onset or, and, and by the way, it takes beyond courage of anybody to come forward and actually address. It really, really does. It's embarrassing. It's you're vulnerable. You're disgusted with yourself. You have self doubt. You have, uh, you know, worry about how the world will judge you because you went through this. It's all about the victim and what the victim perceives the world will believe. And you never know, frankly, how people will react. I have had countless stories. I've been, as I mentioned, people have, because I share with people, people trust me with very dark um, things that they've gone through. And sadly, Tony, way too many times, the amount of times when I share my vulnerability, it gets served back with honest, genuine vulnerability back is what makes us human. The number, and in particular women in my situation that I speak with that have just right back at you got something that they've dealt with, and I hope it helps them as they as they go through it. They're not revealing. They, you know, when I, you know, who knows this? And I realize I'm one of the trusted, you know, three, two, one. <laughs> it's it's like that. That's what's happening in the world. So I think society still has a pretty lackadaisical approach on really being punitive for capturing and finalizing and identifying grotesque behavior from an adult. It's too difficult. It, when I went through it and I did obviously come come forth, healthcare practitioners did ask me, is this something that you can report or, or other? And I was just like, I am just not in a state. This happened more than 30 some odd years ago. I am not in a state to try to bring that back to <sighs> deal with it now. Your journey has been a personal journey, but now I believe your journey is not only to help your clients, but it's to help others. So do you have any parting thoughts on what people can do to overcome circumstances that were as traumatic as yours? My hope for this is that if someone is hearing this and can recognize themselves as someone that may have gone through some form of trauma or abuse of any kind, that they First, give themselves permission to care for themselves and to not bury it and hide it and pretend it didn't happen. And there are so many different ways to get support and help, you know, whether that's professional help, um, you know, establishing a support system of some kind for yourself. My lasting message is really about self-care and protecting yourself and expressing yourself so that you can heal because you're worth it, because it makes a difference for you. And you deserve to be the healthiest, happy, happiest person that you can be. So, Dina, I always end my shows with my three takeaways. And first one is, I'm actually going to use just three words to build it on. The first one is everyone. And I think the point where you went, everyone is going through something, I think is such a profound statement that there's no fairy tale to life. There's no perfectly paved speedway. Some have been dealt a sledgehammer, as you were, in terms of knocking the innocence of child off. But we all have to come to terms that the human race is flawed and the human journey, it can be a roller coaster for sure. The second one, as you talked about, is believe and belief. I love what you talked about. I had to learn to believe in myself and I had to believe in my beliefs. And I think that is so important that as the armor, the weaponry that we need on this journey has to come to my intuition, what I feel is right or wrong. And I, I congratulate you for being at that that stage in your life because I don't think all of us are there. And my third takeaway, 
Dina, is there's two people you mentioned in the show that helped you on your journey. Uh, one of them being your boss who had the, made the time to listen and care, realize your vulnerabilities in the journey and saying, how can I help? But the second one to me, who's another hero to you, is your husband, who was prepared to wait and to realize and to understand and have empathy. And the fact that your friends now call you the two lovebirds to me is magical because it's, it was a journey and investment that was uh, well made. And for all of that and just your desire to share this story uh, with someone with such profile as you have, to me, one of the most courageous stories that have been shared on Chatter That Matters. And I, I, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for, uh, for doing that. Thank you, Tony. That's very kind. One of my favorite parts of the show is how much I learn and grow from it. And one individual that I've learned so much for and grow each time I'm with is Amy Deacon. She's the CEO and founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. She is an old soul, so wise beyond her years and pragmatic and doesn't try to be the smartest person in the room. Lots of lessons for people out there that have advice to offer that sometimes a gentle hand and a lot of listening can often go a lot further than a lot of self-proclaiming. That is just the most lovely introduction. Thank you, Tony. Well, you well deserved. I want to talk about Dina Patel. She was a guest of my show twice in context of RBC. And off camera, she shared her story, which people have just listened to. I mean, this is a young child that was sexually abused Found a way to bury it, she thought. Yeah. <laughs> Age 19, you know, as, as off to university and should be dating and everything, flirting and everything goes with it. She's an absolute, she says, frozen around the opposite sex. A lot of what happened to her as a child starts manifesting in migraines and digestive issues and doctor after doctor, they can't figure out what's right. Finally, the doctor said, do you want to talk to someone? She gets to pick up the phone. Five minutes into it, the person says, before he even knows what she's calling for, are you an A student? Are you a high achiever? Listen, I've got bigger problems to solve and literally hung up on her. And so she buries it again. Is that common that you think that you've compartmentalized something, you've locked it into a trunk, that you've put it away, it becomes fragments of memory? I'm not even sure that happened to me. Then one day that those toxins have to find their way out through physical health? Absolutely. I think sometimes, especially with trauma, we actually dissociate. So we our, our mind can't fully comprehend and, and accept what's happened. So there's a disassociation between our, our brain and our body. And I think there's also this tendency to kind of repress and push it down and shove it down and hopefully it will just dissipate it will disappear um but often what we repress will eventually express itself whether it's through our body and physical illness or uh distressing dreams or intrusive thoughts or inability to concentrate focus so in the immediate we can get away with it but it's honestly typically only a matter of time before it comes back up it comes back again in her 30s and she develops ptsd we use those acronym it was mental health i mean she was everything you just talked about losing focus night terrors swept away with what she thought was someone that was quite in control of her life and her career and started tumbling around like she was inside a dryer she said i i knew then i had to go through a journey credits a lot her boss who opened up and said, you can go through your journey with me, her sister, and even her husband. Every circumstance must present itself in a different way. I think sometimes there's a myth in with therapy that you go in and you know you have a couple of sessions and you're good to go. And I think it definitely depends on 
exactly what you were saying, the, the situation, the circumstances. And for somebody that has trauma that's been repressed for a couple of decades, it's going to take time. But essentially what you're doing, so two parts, what you're doing in therapy is you're kind of building back confidence, right? You're learning to even name feelings, identify them, figure out how you feel in your body and uh, build back some semblance of safety and trust within yourself. That's one part. But the other part that is so beautiful in this particular story is healing in relationship with other people. I cannot underscore how important it is that people have those relationships, right? Whether it's with their partner, family, friends, coworkers, to just know that they don't have to navigate life alone. You know, returning to normal is a, it's a big statement because I don't know if anybody is entirely normal, but it's, it's kind of learning to reclaim your life and knowing how to regulate yourself when you do get tripped up, when you do feel overwhelmed, when you do get really emotional, but how to, how to ground yourself and how to have this working relationship where you not only know how you're feeling, but you know how to treat yourself when you're overwhelmed with those feelings. That's a, that's a real game changer. Um, moving forward in life. And one of the things she talks about is alternative medicines and her mm. South Asian roots or spirituality that she said, I'm not just going to rely on what Western medicine and pharmaceuticals are saying. I'm going to look about meditation, yoga. Is that something that you embrace? Is that something that's readily embraced in the world? Or at times people go, that's just messing up the journey I'm trying to take you on. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I think that the majority of clinicians would have incorporate some type of whether it's uh, mindfulness, meditation, prayer, gratitude that perhaps, you know, 10, 20 years ago would have thought we thought it was airy fairy, uh, but there's actually real research behind it. But I think if there's one thing that you learn in being in this mental health arena, it's that different things work for different people. I've seen religion literally save people's lives. And I would have never thought that 10 years ago. I've seen going to AA groups and those those communities of, of having that tribe of people be more effective than individual therapy. So I think sometimes you never want to kind of put your nose up so high that you dismiss other forms of treatments and methodologies. I think that you really want to encourage people to explore things that they feel called to because um, even art therapy, being with, with, with horses or pets, there's so many different ways that people can heal and you never want to cut those options off from people. And Amy, when you're recruiting other people in your practice, because I know how successful you are, and I don't mean from a monetary point of view, but how many people reach out to you? What do you look for in a therapist when you say, come and join my practice? You know, it's really funny when you mentioned uh, her story at the beginning that she was, that somebody hung up the phone on her and just kind of dismissed her. My family experienced something very, very similar. And so I've always said that the therapists that I hire are therapists that I would pay to see. Our therapist that I would say, you know what, to my cousin or my brother, whoever it may be, call this person, they will have your back. I want somebody that has the credentials and the, their certificates and the, you know, the degrees and all of that. But I want somebody that is so passionate that when people reach out with something that is so vulnerable, they know how to handle it honorably and with care. And they don't take for granted the importance of this role. Amy Deacon, one day we are going to do a show together sooner than later, I hope, because there's so much that you bring to the world. And thankfully, when you have time to do it through Chatter That Matters. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon.